Hello, and thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, where no one is a journalist, but uh, Stefan and Lauren interview people sometimes, and we're broadcast out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, or perhaps on your local community radio station, or on a podcast platform. We are David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. Lightning is cleaning the atmosphere. Massive vortexes of ocean water are growing more energetic. Ocean dead zones are increasing. Almost every glacier on Earth is disappearing. But we might get one fewer highway in Ontario. We will talk about all of this and more, and Stefan is going to interview Darren Qualman. Is that right? That's right. Of the National Farmers Union about a report they did imagining what farming could be like in 2030 when it becomes, if it becomes, it shall become net zero. What a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry uh but first uh lauren wanted to make a comment about mr elon musk and stefan about india i for better or for worse have been thinking a lot about elon musk hosting snl saturday night live this week it's happening this saturday and like okay i get it it's obviously it's a clever move on snl's part because there's been a bunch of buzz around the show for weeks now, and they'll get a bunch of eyeballs come Saturday evening. But I did just want to register that, like, I, I low-key think it's kind of dangerous when we give cultural and artistic platforms to, like, billionaire villains when we otherwise don't need to. This man already has an unquantifiable amount of influence socially, culturally, scientifically, and economically, and, and I wonder... And I think I already know the answer if we really need to help him humanize himself further. Obviously, it's like one silly show. And and as a show, I guess SNL isn't like necessarily under any obligation to like hold the moral high ground here. But if the writers and other performers on the show do their job well, we're going to end up with sketches and resulting memes that circulate on the Internet for decades of Elon Musk on SNL. Because like like I was thinking about today, it's like people still say more cowbell in a Christopher Walken voice. And that came out over 21 years ago now. So like it needs to, I guess it, I should probably reiterate really quickly for people who might be wondering why I'm on such a tirade against Elon Musk that like any good that that man might be responsible for in promoting Tesla and making electric, uh, electric vehicles kind of sexy is entirely undone by the violence he's responsible for as like a multi, multi 10 times over billionaire who mistreats his workers and is more concerned with commercially colonizing Mars than he is with preserving life and ecosystem integrity on this planet. So that's what I've been thinking about this week. Um, But also if you haven't seen the sketch with Bo and Yang as the iceberg from Titanic yet, I would highly recommend you take five minutes and check that out. It's very funny. Might make you feel a little bit less bummed out about all of the, all of the icebergs and glaciers we currently have disappearing. Everyone still remembers Jimmy Fallon tussling Trump's hair. Right. And like there have been significant improvements in battery technology, you know, coming out of some of their work. That's unquestionable. He also kind of low key supported the coup in Bolivia. So like maybe that shouldn't be a thing we support. 
Well, no. And like, bottom line, it's like, he's the closest thing. This is going to sound so silly. He's the closest thing we have to like a Marvel supervillain, like, like a Thanos who it's like, yeah, he's going to technically save the planet, but he's going to kill half of you while doing it. It's not something we're stoked about. He literally thinks Mars is the answer. Mars is not the answer. Mars sucks, everyone. Mars sucks. It's hot. It's cold. Not where you want to be. Don't forget the, the brain implants in the chimps. He's about to upgrade your brain using silicone, and you're about to be mad thankful. What a mortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. Completely shifting gears. Perhaps the one of the hardest uh, 180s we will try to put on the show. Uh, before we hop into the new segment, I want to... Uh, uh, make a heartfelt call out to our listeners that if anyone has the financial means to support the people of India as they battle what is one of the more horrific expansions of COVID that we've seen over the last year and a half of horrific expansions of COVID, you know, we've seen this time and time again, but this is a truly nightmarish experience, please do. In the show post, I'll post one place you can support, which is a bit of an odd one. It's an open source oxygen concentrator that because they are running out of oxygen, they are find, these people have found ways to open source and build these more simply, and they're trying to get them out as much as possible. There's only one solution. It's not obviously going to solve all the problems. So please take a look and support some of the organizations that are working on the ground there because we are one set of humans on this planet. And for as long as we are lucky enough to be on a very short vaccine timeline, there are, there's a vast percentage of the world that's not, and they still need to handle this right now. So if you can support, please do. for some news headlines. A team of researchers with satellites has found that degradation of the Brazilian Amazon, which is a slow death through which biomass and soil quality decline and species change, has been worse for the climate in recent years than deforestation, of the Brazilian Amazon. This loss of biomass caused by droughts and wildfires and indirectly by deforestation causes the forest to release the carbon it once stored, accelerating the climate crisis. The research also found that through the 2010s, degradation and deforestation caused the Brazilian Amazon to release more carbon than it was able to store. NASA's Terra satellite has been circling the Earth every 100 minutes since 1999, and a new analysis shows that the images it has been taking prove that almost all the world's glaciers are melting. It is the first glacier study to include all 220,000 glaciers in the world, not including the massive ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, it found that glaciers lost an average of 267 gigatons every year between 2000 and 2019, and this loss is accelerating. 
These melting glaciers account for around 21% of sea level rise, which is also accelerating. Science Daily notes that around half of this sea level rise is from the oceans growing larger as they heat up, and the rest is from the melting Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, as well as innumerable changes in land water. The UN recently published its second world ocean assessment. They found that the number of ocean dead zones increased from 400 in 2008 to 700 in 2019. The report also found, quote, around 90% of mangrove, seagrass, and marsh plant species, as well as more than 30% of seabird species, are facing the threat of extinction. According to a study published by the American Geophysical Union last year, the oceans have absorbed 40% of our carbon emissions since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Now, a new study published in Nature Climate Change shows that medium-sized ocean eddies, which are massive vortexes of ocean water, have been dramatically reorganized over the past 30 years, and the energy they contain has increased, which could potentially hamper the ocean's ability to continue absorbing the excess CO2 that we're putting into the system. On the positive side, studies recently published in the journal Science and the Journal of Geophysical Research are showing that lightning heals the atmosphere significantly by creating particles that break down greenhouse gases. The invisible electricity in storm clouds also oxidizes the atmosphere. Moving on to the United States, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has released its Climate Normals Report, which it does every 10 years, and parts of Alaska are no longer considered subarctic. Hawaii is officially the first U.S. state to, to declare a climate emergency. The Guardian reports that California has drafted a cease-and-desist order to Nestle to try to get them to stop taking millions and millions more gallons of water out of the ground than they're supposed to. New research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences is showing that people are being sold houses all over the U.S. without being told how likely it is that they will flood. The researchers write, quote, Houses in flood zones in the United States are currently overvalued by a total of $43.8 billion, based on the information in publicly available flood hazard maps alone, raising concerns about the stability of real estate markets as climate risks become more salient and severe. Down in Arizona, the state attorney general is using misinformed environmental concerns as an excuse for xenophobia. He is suing the Biden administration to try to get them to let in fewer immigrants on climate grounds, which is the same position that inspired the murderous green manifestos of two mass shooters in recent years. A new study published in Science Advances is showing that air pollution is disproportionately and systemically concentrated in non-white communities. This comes as a recent psychological study from the UK has found that children exposed to outdoor air pollution are more likely to develop mental illnesses. The Intercept reports that an American appeals court recently ruled that the U.S. government's delay in banning a neurotoxic pesticide in 2016 
exposed a generation of children to the brain-damaging chemical. Back in California, marine scientists have discovered over 27,000 barrels of what they believe to be DDT that was dumped into the ocean between 1930 and 1970. DDT is a toxic, colorless, tasteless, and almost odorless man-made chemical that persists in the environment, accumulates in fatty tissues, and travels long distances in the upper atmosphere. At least the United States government is finally cracking down on HFCs, which are powerful greenhouse gases used in refrigerants and insulation. This comes two years after the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol came into effect, by which 119 countries agreed to gradually stop using HFCs. Canada was one of those countries, and the Calgary Herald notes that our federal government has recently been called out for allowing certain companies to continue using HFCs, even though we were among the most gung-ho regarding the amendment to ban them. Our federal government has decided to perform an environmental review of Highway 413 in Ontario, which could kill the project, because federal reviews are more rigorous, and stop it from cutting through the greenbelt. Emma McIntosh notes for the National Observer that the proposed Bradford Bypass Highway, which also cuts through the greenbelt, will not be so scrutinized. Ontario Premier Doug Ford who was recently labeled an evil hedgehog who just ate your freedoms, promised during his campaign not to touch the greenbelt, after he was roundly shouted down for suggesting that he would touch the greenbelt, which he is now trying to pave over. Over in Calgary, the Canada Energy Regulator has decided that the operator of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline does not have to publicly reveal who is insuring it, because those insurers would be targeted by indigenous land defenders and activists. The Tsleil-Waututh Nation's Sacred Trust stated, quote, Climate-related weather events cost Canadian insurance companies $2.4 billion in 2020 alone. It makes business sense for insurers to stop investing in projects like pipelines that contribute to climate change. Fires and floods from climate change are costly. The Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline uh, travels across 1,000 kilometers of challenging terrain through British Columbia. The increased risk of flooding and slope failure from the changing climate regime results in increased risk to infrastructure and of oil spills. Combined with Trans Mountain's history of 85 reported spills and multiple accidents, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and, and its expansion are risky undertakings for insurers, and they know it. A broad coalition of indigenous communities and global environmental groups are planning to ramp up pressure on the insurers that have not yet ruled out supporting Trans Mountain. The Canadian federal government has recently stated that we may not have long-term solutions for clean drinking water on reserves, possibly for another five years. An investigation from Global News, APTN, and Concordia University from February showed how First Nations are often forced to choose the cheapest water infrastructure proposals they receive to save the government money. Over on the East Coast, 
the Department of Fisheries and Oceans seized 37 lobster traps from Mi'kmaq fishers of the Botlatek First Nation because they didn't have a license from the Canadian government. Even though it's been over 20 years since the Supreme Court ruled that Mi'kmaq fishers could lawfully fish for a moderate livelihood whenever they wanted, as upheld by the treaties that our society keeps failing to respect. The Sibignagadi First Nation has said that they will request UN peacekeepers to come to Nova Scotia to protect them as they fish according to their treaty rights this summer. Down in Mexico, seven members of the Zapatistas are sailing to Spain 500 years after the Spanish invasion of Mexico. The Zapatistas are indigenous, libertarian, socialist rebels that still control a large part of the Mexican state of Chiapas. Finally, McGill professor Madhav Badami reminds us for the ecologists that global pandemics, like the one that is currently tearing the world apart, are made more likely by environmental encroachment, climate change, and biodiversity loss. COVID-19 was also exacerbated by our global economic system, which is killing the environment and serving the wealthy. Climate action that shifts power away from huge systems controlled by a small number of people therefore helps prevent future pandemics. We can also see this in the way that corporatized greed has been attempting to prevent worldwide access to COVID vaccines, which makes it more likely that we could face a vaccine-resistant mutation. For several months now, um, campaigners, um, both indigenous and, and settler, have led some really successful campaigns against the insurance companies that are backing the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Because um, I'm sure, as most people can imagine, if you can't get insurance for your pipeline, you you can't have your pipeline. Um, and uh, I guess what ends up happening is, is with the small amount of research I've done, every year uh, a financial resource plan has to be filed in April by Trans Mountain in regards to this specific project. And back in February, on I think the 22nd, uh, Trans Mountain um, submitted a, a sort of um, a letter of request to the Canadian Energy Regulator. Um, asking for permission to not have to include their insurance companies in that financial sort of resource plan they put out every year. And that is in an effort to um, kind of cut this grassroots led campaign off at its feet and allow these insurance companies to continue to support the pipeline um, sort of unabated, if that makes sense. Um, so this has obviously caused a lot of controversy because in recent days, from what I understand, um, the Canadian energy regulator has, has come back and said, you know what? Yep. That's allowed. You can do that. You don't have to tell us who your insurers are anymore, which, um, I'm sure nobody is all that surprised at because let's be real. Um, the Canadian energy regulator is a branch of the Canadian federal government and the trans mountain pipeline is supported to the tune of billions of dollars by the Canadian federal government. So th when they've a vested interest in the success of this project, they're, they're removing any and all barriers that they possibly can to ensure that it goes through. 
so this is this is surprising to no one, but um, it's quite scandalous in the world of insurance. And of course, it's it's extremely upsetting for many because it's it's the government trying to to halt this grassroots campaign. What it tells me is that it's a really successful campaign, and this is something that those who are actively fighting the pipeline should be really really proud of because it shows that they've hit a real soft spot here. Because um, in the last couple of years since this campaign has been up and running, specifically targeting the insurance companies, you've had Zurich Insurance Company Limited. Um, uh, ooh, of course, I have to reference my list. We've had uh, Zurich Insurance Company Limited withdraw support, um, as have Munich um, and HDI. And they have come out publicly and said that even though um, the world wouldn't necessarily know, they, they won't be reinsuring the pipeline. Meanwhile, um, the other insurers, AIG, Chubb, Energy Insurance Mutual Limited, Liberty Mutual, Star, Stewart Specialty Risk, Underwriting Limited, and WR Berkeley um, haven't said whether or not they will continue to insure the pipeline, um, which I'm sure we can kind of surmise based on their lack of statement, what they will be doing. So if you are invested in any of those companies, AIG, Chubb, Energy Insurance Mutual Limited, et cetera, maybe maybe consider no longer investing in them because they're clearly not all that concerned with losing money and hemorrhaging it in the next few years. Yeah, which I must say, I'm a little saddened, as Dave referenced actually in the in that report about the insurance companies, they should be natural allies to the climate movement. And yet, when we, if you jump even just a little bit further up in that in the in the, in the conversation that that in the, in the headlines that Davis mentioned, there's the piece about the overvaluing of uh, houses on natural floodplains. And do you know what will not get insurance? Those houses for flooding. <laughs> like the insurance companies are more than willing to support fossil fuel infrastructure and protect them because they can see money in it right now. But like, if you think they're going to show up and accept that they're going to lose money on flood insurance and floodplains or fire insurance in California, you have another thing coming. And that is going to be a huge problem. And so the fact that the insurance, company right now, insurance companies right now seem to be in some ways, A, not really being the, the, I would say, leaders that their industry should be on climate change. They are also doing what really every other sort of massive company is doing, which is trying to make as much money as they possibly can in the areas they can with while, you know, before bailing eventually when it all falls apart. But like some's going to be left holding the bag. And more and more often in these all these instances, it ends up being the public. You know, who helps the people who have lost their houses to floods? They will end up being supported by government, hopefully, like like better than not being supported at all. But, you know, that's that that will be that's that'll get publicized. You know, that's what you see this time and time again. And all of this money is getting soaked up by insurance companies. They're, if they're making money off climate change, they should be investing it in protecting people from climate change. And they're only doing one. Absolutely. It's the mega rich supporting the mega rich and the rest of us are just collateral damage. Yeah. And uh, the, the, what, but we will end on the good news, which Dave noted at the very beginning of the show, which is that Highway 413 uh, will undergo a federal environmental assessment, which a huge shout out to everyone uh, who sort of fought against the pipeline project, fought against this highway project. Uh, you know, we've been covering this for almost a year now. So, you know, the the to the Julia Levens of this world, congratulations. This is wonderful news. Um, and I will say that that is part of the reason why I say that is 
obviously a most often environmental assessments are not the ends of projects they are a part of a thing that people must work through and then they say you have to do xyz and then they continue you know it's rare that environmental assessment actually ends a project however because this was already sort of a zombie project that had been pulled back from the grave like 16 times a lot of people do see this environmental assessment as perhaps being sort of the death of it and maybe that's because they're presuming that Doug Ford's not going to make it to the next election and that no other government will will pass it. Maybe it's just because maybe it's because that they don't think the federal government will the, the federal government will put in enough restrictions that it will then delay it. Or maybe it's just that people realize that highways are increasingly, like all other fossil fuel infrastructure, becoming less necessary, and that if they do another study two years from now, when people aren't commuting as much as they have in the past, this highway will no longer make any sense at all. Any of those reasons could be true, but for now, let us uh, let us just thank the people who fought against it and w- revel in the in the fact that for at least a short period of time, Highway 413 is once again sent back into the bowels of bureaucracy. I love it. I don't have any comments. Let's go to break. going to go to a short break and when we come back Stefan is going to interview Mr. Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union about a report they made from the perspective of 2030 about farming and carbon neutrality. Thank you for listening to The Green Majority. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And thank you so much to everyone who's already donating. Peace. Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts are found. And today we're welcoming back to the show, Darren Qualman, the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action with the National Farmers Union, who has just released a report sort of detailing what a net zero agriculture industry by 2030 could look like. 
Welcome, Darren. Thanks, Stefan. Great to be back. So this is such an interesting report. You released it a couple weeks ago now. And the first two questions are really about actually the thought process behind the paper. And then I want to dive into the paper because I, I think actually the thought process behind the paper is actually in itself a fascinating conversation about climate communications, really. And then the paper itself obviously has a whole bunch of other value that I want to get make sure we get to. So if we can start with what was the goal of this paper? Okay, so the, the paper, the title is uh, Imagine If a Vision of a Near Zero Emission Farm and Food System for Canada. So there's a lot of people have been putting a lot of thought into the various ways we can reduce emissions from agriculture and the larger food system in Canada. What we wanted to do is we wanted to give people a picture of what that would look like. So the paper is set in 2030 and we invite people to imagine what things would look like if we implemented all of the, the policies and programs and technologies and really worked hard and accomplished our goals and, and really reduced the emissions from the food system and in some places even got down to near zero emission farm and food systems. So the report is an invitation to imagine. It's, it's not NFU policy. Instead, it, it's a blue sky effort just to give people the opportunity to kind of revel in the possibilities and, and the really positive outcomes that are really at hand and within our grasp. So it's not just emission reduction, but it's a whole suite of attendant co-benefits like more young farmers, higher net farm income, more local and diverse and de delicious food. But the report is, is also a, a provocation in that we want to provoke new thinking, we want to provoke a conversation, we want to challenge people's ideas about how food systems have to work. We've got certain systems now and they're quite energy intensive and industrial and far flung and often people aren't well connected with them and they're sort of shaped by corporations. And, and we wanted people to imagine a wholly different kind of, of food and farming system for Canada. Awesome. And so you touched on it a little bit there, but I do want to dive in a little bit deeper because this is such a unique way to write a report. I have not, I'm not going to say I've read every report ever, but as a reader of reports, I will say I think it's rare to find one that feels so much like a story. In this report, you take us to farm, to farm, to farm, and we get to experience what it would be like to go to these farms. Obviously, they don't exist. It's done 2030, but it embeds you in a totally different way of thinking because you are imagining yourself being in this space versus, you know, a normal report that'd be like, well, if you did this, this, and this, it would lead to this and this outcome, right? That, that kind of more scientific, perhaps, approach. not saying this, this is obviously backed by science, but it really draws you in in a different way. And I'm curious why you decided to, to take that approach. Yeah, that's right, Stefan. We, we, we moved away from the usual policy formulation approach and instead set the various changes that we wanted people to imagine on actual farms in 2030. We wanted to give people a very concrete and visual and, and evocative picture of what this could look like. So we describe a future in which 
uh, all the, the policies and, and technologies that we think should be deployed, that they're actually in place. And then we, we actually hear from the farmers on those farms describing all the positive outcomes uh, for them and their family, for the ecosystems, what have you. So yeah, it's, it's very concrete and visual in kind of a storytelling way where the people are, there's actual quotes from the farmers discussing, you know, how, how this has played out in their farms. Yeah. So let's dive into some of these farms because it is an in-depth report and there's a lot of information there. So can you tell us or take us through some of the different farms that this report visits? Yeah. So the report uh, starts out in a farm in Alberta and it talks about how the the people on that farm are are using nitrogen fertilizer more efficiently. Uh, They're using less of it. They're using some technology. They're also finding alternatives trying to rely less on industry and more on biology. And that's a real theme of the, the whole report that, you know, after about a hundred years of making farmers more and more dependent on industrial inputs, that in the future, we're gonna try and delink to some extent and move more toward a dependence upon and integration with biology and ecology. So it talks about nitrogen because that's really the big driver of emissions in agriculture. And on that farm, they've implemented a whole bunch of technologies and alternatives. On another farm in the report, the farmers talk about uh, how, despite the fact they're not organic, they're learning a lot from their organic neighbors. And they're learning how to, to use fewer inputs, alternatives to purchased inputs, and how they're, they're creating a hybrid system that takes the best of the, the conventional, so-called conventional forms of agriculture and hybridizing that with all the best ideas from organic agriculture. On a lot of the farms, uh, electric tractors, electric machinery play a, a real role, alternative energy, and trying to figure out how to farm without fossil fuels. Even in 2030, that won't be uh, fully deployed by any stretch but we can begin to see the beginning of how fossil fuel free agriculture might might play out. On other farms in the Maritimes, we hear from farmers who are getting a lot of agronomic support, new kinds of support from agronomists, where these agronomists, instead of being focused on maximizing yield and output and, and by extension input use, are instead focused on helping farmers find ways to produce that minimize inputs and thereby minimize emissions. And that's another theme of the report, that we need, we need new goals, that maximizing production and yield is really a recipe for maximizing input use and thus emissions. So we need to sort of change our, our goals and direction and then also the, the federal government policy uh, focus. But the, the, last, the last stop in this sort of imagined tour of a, a new food system in 2030, the last stop I'll mention is uh, in the cities themselves. And uh, we, we explore a concept called food sheds. And uh, your listeners will know that watersheds are the area of land that contribute water to a, a lake or river. Well, a food shed is the area of land around a city that contributes food to that city. And we suggest that, you know, cities could begin buying up the land within X number of kilometers, 
giving that land over to young farmers, new Canadians, people who want to farm it organically, holistically, uh, permaculture, regenerative agroecology. Maybe they'll uh, use zero emission tractors. They probably won't use nitrogen fertilizer, etc. They might bring that food to the cities in ways that don't use any fossil fuels. So in that food shed, that, that farms without inputs, farms without fossil fuel, moves food without fossil fuel to local markets, in that food shed, we begin to see the first glimpses of zero emission food systems or near zero emission food systems. It isn't everywhere. It isn't all the food. But we think it's tremendously inspiring that at least we can imagine a very near-term future where some of the food coming to some of Canada's major cities and communities and households is near zero emission. So I didn't prep this question for you. So if you don't have a good answer to it, we can skip it. But this idea of a food shed to me is one of these things that in many conversations I have with people who sort of don't understand agriculture to its to the, to the level of difficulty and scale that it exists at. You often hear a conversation around the ways in which urban agriculture or victory garden type things could feed a city. And then you have a conversation or I have a conversation with someone who has, you know, studied food systems and they're like, yeah, but that's a microcosm, a, a, such a small percentage of what is, would be necessary to actually feed a city. And this food shed idea, I think, expands on that concept of local food. It is the idea of actually increasing full-on agriculture farms. And so they sort of, honestly, selfishly, maybe they decrease sprawl, which I think would be a wonderful benefit from an action like this. But I'm curious, how much do you think you could get from a food shed like this? Like what percentage of food could you imagine coming from a food shed around a Canadian major city? Well, if you... Reframe the question a little bit. Could you produce enough calories to feed everyone in a city from, from its food shed? Sure, you absolutely can. Right. Uh, it's, it's tough to produce coffee or pineapples there. But the reason I know that for sure is food sheds are the ways cities fed themselves for thousands of years. Cities have existed for about 5,000 years. And for about 4,950 of those years, roughly, the city was fed by the area around it, just because there wasn't capacity to move food halfway around the world. You know, if you think about cities uh, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, they got their food from a, a donut-shaped area, roughly, you know, with an X number of, of kilometers from that city. A little bit was brought from farther away, places over the, the Silk Road, etc. But most of that food was produced fairly locally. And it's only in the last century or so in this incredible profusion of fossil fuels that we've severed the link between cities and the land around them. And as we move into a future where we don't have the luxury of vaporizing fossil fuels at a massive rate, we're going to have to rediscover that that area around our habitations is a really good place for producing as much food as we can. Right. That makes sense. If we all ate one thing, we'd be fine. But Maybe we want to keep our diets more, you know, that makes a lot of sense. If, if we all ate lentils, uh, we right. can have a fairly compact food shed and everyone would get the calories they need, but we, we have more diverse dietary wants. Right. So what are the biggest changes in, in envisioned in this report? You sort of given us a sense of the 
types of farms that exist in this report, but what are those fundamental changes that have occurred in this report and that we're now seeing the fruits of? Sure, and, and the report frames this very visually through a lot of examples, but to distill it down into policy points, there's really four and in the transformative vision that we get people to imagine. And the first is, as we move to these more sustainable, resilient, lower emission food systems, we're moving from an agriculture that draws heavily on industry for inputs like fertilizer, et cetera, to one that draws more on biology. The second major change is from food systems that are powered by fossil fuels to food systems that are powered by sunlight, various forms of solar energy. The third is from food systems that are really export focused and export maximizing to ones that are, are more uh, based on regional production and processing, getting food production back into the local area, but also food processing. So that's a real problem. A lot of Canadian cities, there, there might be grains and, and livestock very close to the city, but there's no way to process those. So, so everything has to be trucked hundreds of kilometers one way and, and back. So again, reconnect people with their surrounding food shed and, and local processing capacity. And the last one is a, a transformation from food and farming systems that are shaped by corporations and stock market returns to food and farming systems that are shaped by governments and citizens and communities democratically and shaped by the imperatives of emissions reduction and, and planetary limits and sustainability and resilience. So th those are the four big transitions. They, they sound very policy heavy when I say it that way, but the report kind of lays that out in, in a series of examples. Right. That makes sense. And you can sort of imagine how some of these would, would come out. And I'm curious if you can give us maybe one example of how one could shift from industry to biology. Like what is a biological factor we could be using to replace some of the industrial uh, inputs we're currently using? Sure, and, and just for a tiny bit of background. So for 9,900 years, we had agriculture based on biology. And then for a hundred years, we went into industry. And now we need to move the dial back a little bit more toward biology. Uh, one example is nitrogen. Uh, in factory produced fossil fuel derived nitrogen is really only something we've had for a hundred years. We've become massively dependent upon it. We need to dial that back 20, 30, 40, 50% and try and get some of that nitrogen from things like nitrogen fixing uh, plants, pulses, legumes, uh, lentils, peas, that sort of thing. And so how does that work? Do you have a, a crop, you harvest the crop and then you plant legumes? Do you, or, or is it more of like a seeding of legumes? Where you don't have them in the rotation, you try and put them into the rotation. And this is where, you know, you have to think of the system holistically. If people eat more of their food in the form of lentils and peas, that sort of thing, then that creates demand. And then you can put more of those into the rotation. So it, it, when you change one thing, the thing about food systems is they are a system. And if you're going to change one thing, you have to change a number of things. And the other one I think I want to dive into a little bit before we get to my last question is this export maximizing to regional production and processing, because you know we're seeing this be a problem across the world. We recently covered a couple of stories where one of the outcomes of switching to an export maximizing production sphere is that these farmers then become beholden to the market 
And so sometimes people can have previously been subsistence farming and making enough to eat, but then they're switching export model and they're not selling enough to be able to then buy the food that they can eat. It's the same land. And yet somehow they're, they're no longer getting enough to actually allow themselves to sustain themselves because of this export minded shift. And I think that is tied, I expect, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to the desire to maximize yield. And so that maximizing yield piece, I think, comes up a lot. And so I'm curious if you dive into those two pieces. Yeah, in Canada, several people have observed that if uh, there is a prime directive in Canadian agriculture policy, it is increase exports. Over the last 25 years, governments and industry together have repeatedly set very ambitious export increase targets and they've met them and then they set another one. And no matter how high exports go, they're always spurred to go higher and higher. And uh, you know, farmers uh, out where I live in Western Canada, very, very focused on export markets. But when we maximize exports, we're also maximizing uh, output. And uh, the unintended consequence is we maximize input use like nitrogen fertilizer, and thus we maximize emissions. And uh, not surprisingly, emissions are going up. So we want to keep exporting. We produce more food than we're going to eat. So it's not exports that are the problem. It's this sort of monodimensional focus, this overemphasis of exports. And we think that the goal space for farms and food systems need, needs to be more diverse, more focus on efficiency with inputs, uh, emission reduction, resilience, sustainability, those sorts of things. And so you have this report, which envisions a 2030. And in the report, the story that's told is that in the early 2020s, there's this big shift that occurs. And we just saw a liberal budget that came out now a couple of weeks ago. How much of what you imagined necessary was in that budget? Did you see anything in that budget that sort of hinted that you were heading in the direction that you see that we need to be? And is there anything really missing from it that you would be like, no, this needs to be added if we're really going to get to this vision of 2030? The last uh, couple of weeks and a couple of months have been really surprising for those of us who've worked in these policy circles for a long time, because suddenly so much is happening. Just I'll go back to December of 2020. The government of Canada brought forward a specific policy that said greenhouse gas emissions from nitrogen fertilizer use have to fall 30% in absolute terms by 2030. The, the trend line is now going upward. They said, no, it's got to go downward. It's got to go downward very significantly. Uh, they followed up in the budget and there's programs in there, well-funded programs to help farmers use nitrogen more efficiently and use less nitrogen. There's programs in there to help farmers rotationally graze their cattle, programs in there to help support the retention of, of wetlands and trees. So just tremendous amount of things. Awesome. Is there anything that you would want? So say you could write the next budget, what would you include? Well, we need to constantly up our game on this. Nitrogen fertilizer is a huge problem. It's one of the biggest sources of emissions in our food system, and it's the one that's driving emissions up. We really need to, to move off of that. We don't have a good idea of how to create non-emitting agricultural equipment. I think many of your listeners will be quite familiar now with electric cars. Soon uh, electric light trucks are coming. 
maybe electric heavy trucks, but we're, we're very far behind in terms of creating uh, electric tractors that could be charged with renewable energy, et cetera. And uh, the other thing too is figuring out what we do with, with livestock. I'm in about year 10 of trying to figure this one out. And the deeper I go, the more I realize I don't know. The simplistic solutions around, you know, not eating meat, et cetera, uh, those don't really work well because we've got grassland. We want to retain the grassland. Grassland works better when they're grazing animals. We've had millions of years of grazing. We need to figure out ways that we can optimize the health and extent of our grassland and, and deploy livestock onto that grassland, but at the same time, reduce the emissions from grazing animals and from the whole, the whole system. So that's something that we need more, more work on. But uh, I have to say, I've not ever seen a, a, a two-week period where more solutions have come from the federal government than in the last couple of weeks. It, it really is amazing. And then, of course, on top of that, the upping the ambition on overall emissions reduction to 40 to 45 percent. So if folks wanted to find this report or learn more or support the National Farmers Union, where can they go? Uh, they can go to the uh, NFU website www.nfu.ca. When they go there, they'll see a big blue button that says climate. Just click on that and you'll go right to that report. The report's called Imagine If. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Darren Qualman, the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Stefan. Really a pleasure being here. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.